Yeah, on. Yeah, buddy. Welcome to episode 48 of Two Twins in an Album. Nubs here, as always, joined by uh, the other twin, T. T, how are you? Hey, oh. Can't complain, buddy. Can't complain. Big show today. Fired, fired up to talk to our guests today. T, we've done a lot of things on the, uh, the old podcast here. Today's the first because it's the first time we've had royalty. Uh, yeah, it's true. That's true. And we are so honored and pleased and thrilled and grateful to be joined for the discussion of Urge Overkill's 1993 classic saturation by Mr. Urge Overkill himself, Eddie King Roser. Eddie, thank you. So, I, should I say King? Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime to talk about that uh, dream of a record, I guess. Beautiful record. Beautiful record. Can't wait to talk about it. And uh, we go way, you know, little do you know, we, we go way back with you, good man, uh, back to said records tour. And uh, we both had a little bit of unfortunate nights, unfortunately, at the old uh, State Theater in Detroit, which is now called the Fillmore. You know, they've sold out and changed the name and all that. And you guys were touring Saturation and we we both. I mean, Nubs, I don't know if you want to get right into it. We were, I was 13. Yeah. Yeah. We had a really cool mom who took us to shows, um, you know, in downtown Detroit, which was pretty awesome at that age. And one of the things, whenever, whenever I think about you guys and whenever I think about saturation, you know, you're always kind of taking yourself back to that time. We went to the show, you guys came out and you were opening with crack babies at the time which was awesome. So you play the little lullaby thing and like everyone's getting jacked up and, and this was a full GA upfront deal. So, you know, th- this was the mosh era. Right. And when you guys busted into it, especially the chorus, which we'll get to, can't wait to, cause I love that track. 13 year old me decided my skinny ass could, you know, compete in the mosh pit. And I was a glasses kid, big, thick, I had horrible vision. I've since gotten LASIK. And I got elbowed around, knocked around a little too hard, and my glasses went flying, probably got stomped, trampled, and I was so pissed off, King. I, I couldn't see you guys the entire show, except for the first like 30 seconds of Crack Babies. Now I could hear you, which right. was awesome. But you know, when you're 13, you're going to see one of my favorite bands at the time, Urge Overkill, you want to see the guys. Yeah. You know, a trio is like visually, you guys were all cool. And... uh you just look like a big fuzzball to me for the entire set. So my vision is not great. So I would not be happy at a concert. <laughs> it was like so awesome to see you guys, but it was also kind of a tough night for me back at eight, you know, at age 13, that kind of like ruined your month. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And King, I thought I could, uh, crowd surf again, 14 years old. We're twins. So we're the same age. And, uh, upon, uh, what is it called? The landing, the dismount, uh, my knee twisted in about five different directions that it's not supposed to twist in. And for the rest of the night I had a swollen knee. And, uh, so when my brother and I finally found each other, it's like, yeah, urge. Yeah. How you doing, man? Oh, my glasses broke. How you doing, man? Oh, my knees like in three 
different places right now. But you know what? It was still an amazing show. Yeah, you guys kicked you ass. Guys we just had a so rough good. night. The thing I remember most, King, and, and and I want to get into some of the kind of visual, just overall like branding of the band was you guys came out in the URGE shirts and it's okay. spelled across the stage. Yes. And that was the coolest thing in the world. And I remember you guys also used to wear the UO medallions. And I guess first and foremost, do you have one of those medallions you can give me? Cause I would love to have yeah, one. Yeah. Or two. I'd like one too. I, I might have the, uh, we did have a fan club version. They were about as big as a quarter. Now there's a box somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to look into that, but uh, that's possible. Those things were, were amazing. And we're so we're grateful to have been able to see you guys on that tour because it really felt like a special time for the band. And, and already just hearing you have warm memories of saturation is a good thing. Cause when we interview artists and when we have guests, we never know whether it's going to be, you know, a, a positive time, a negative time. If there was, it was your first major label effort. There could be a lot of things that went in and out of it. So I guess just first and foremost, just overall thoughts and reflections on that era of the band and, and what does saturation mean to you? Well, it was a crazy time. We were a touch and go band and the label operated sort of as like a little dysfunctional family where people, we would have these barbecues either at Corey's house or like Steve would be there, members of the digits. Sometimes there would be people from Killdozer there. All of these people from these sort of noisy bands who were famously poor at communicating. It's like people who didn't go to parties at a party. So no one really knew what to say. So we <laughs> cooked meat and, and drank. <laughs> Usually just a bunch of guys hanging around. And it was it was... I guess I look back fondly on it, but it wasn't like, uh, it, you know, it's, it was a little bit like being on the Island of Misfits toys. We weren't thinking at the time, wow, we're cool rockers at the touch and go party. It was sort of like, we're the freaks of the world and this is our, our music. And, you know, at, at the time, the entity, uh, urge overkill before, I, I would have to say, you know, it, it was kind of a pre sub pop time and, and a post sub pop time around that time. The thing that really hit really big was we were in awe of, I guess the biggest band on touch and go would have been the butthole surfers. And if you could get as big as they were, that was like a dream beyond, you know, they were playing middle-sized theaters, but they were truly that was something to 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 really shoot for the goal of like having uh you know they had a show and it was you know they had somebody projecting movies and uh smoke machines and all sorts of you know they were kind of they meant to sort of uh intimidate and frighten the audience and i think they largely succeeded in sort of we were always hearing all this weird uh, rumors how they were all, they all like took acid and had sex with each other and it was like really crazy scary stuff so we were like get you know giving <laughs> seven feet tall everybody was scared to talk to him and it's like God this guy's like 
taken so much acid. I wonder what it's like to be him. So we we were really uh, we were a little more on the level of the the local bands that were heroes of ours. I I wouldn't say they were local, but the Digits were great at the peak of their powers. I think probably the most exciting rock band I I so had seen up close. You know, we'd go on to to tour with uh, Nirvana and a lot of other bands, but man, the digits at their best were they could smoke anybody. And uh, also the the Killdozer for people who maybe aren't familiar with uh, Touch and Go, but they had done their records with Butch Vig and, and that's how sort of Butch Vig got introduced to like punk music. You know, he was in a band that was in a Midwest sort of a rock. He was in a band called Spooner from the town Spooner, Wisconsin, and wasn't was was more like had the good fortune to be in Madison listed as a somebody to record records and touch and go got a hold of him or or, or I think the 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 killdozer guys got a hold of him. And uh, people were happy with that production. And it was it was between working with Steve and Butch Fig. What I would say to, about that time is no one really foresaw that that this style of music was about to kind of take over the cultural place at the top of the, the charts. Literally, it was, uh, it was the, the time when you know, grunge hadn't gone mainstream. And that, that was something that really turned, I guess it was more, more of uh, a dream than, uh, than a reality to be able to get enough funding to spend a few weeks in the studio rather than a couple weekends. I mean, it really was a, a thing that worked to, to our advantage. And I think a lot of music at the time where you had to commit to a certain time, things were going to be done and recorded. So a lot of lyrics and song ideas were last minute. You couldn't call it up on the computer and go back and think about it. So a lot of the records at the time had to do with, you know, sort of committing it to vinyl at the time or committing it to tape. And tape was really expensive. And and I never imagined the day when Urge could have their own studio at home, you know, much less learn how to run it. But after the whole thing happened where Nirvana kind of hit the popular consciousness, it allowed us to, I guess, have access. You know, anybody at the time could there there was demand for, uh, I guess, punk bands. And uh, we were kind of playing with the idea of doing some of the least, you know, punk, just, just to be uh, combative. We were, you know, what's the, the least punk thing you could do is like put on like, uh, you know, we, we sort of got into our leisure suit uh, period where we, we, we were going to thrift stores and finding tuxedos just to kind of change the, the narrative around a little bit. And we, we got some, notice for that good and bad and we 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 sort of got a lot of shit for maybe making fun of ourselves a, a little not not that everything on touch and go definitely had some humor about it and you you knew that but i think the the popular perception is that you know all oh, these are you know this is serious shit and people are are like it's serious this is all about angst 
for us, we kind of went through that uh, angsty period and we're, we're more like our first single was a cover of uh, Wichita Lineman, uh, the, the Jim Webb song. I mean, it was drenched in in reverb. And, and I remember they had just invented the digital delay. So that is like cranked to 10 on everything everybody produced then. But it had like an eerie effect. So it's a real specific time in our career where I sort of remember the last thing really you expected to do in going into music was to really to be recognized for it on on any level, like uh, making it onto MTV or something like that. There's a tremendous amount of humor and irony within a lot of the album tracks. And that certainly came through along with the image of the band and things like that. And, and can't wait to dive in it. And we'll do that. But first, T, let's, let's take things round and round and find out what we've been listening to. And more importantly, what King's been listening to. Let's go round and round. All right. So three albums that have been on your turntable of late. What do you got? All right, we'll go quick because I want to hear more from the King. Um, but uh, I've been listening to uh, the band, the Big Pink, a little bit. Oh yeah, never, never a bad time for those cats. Uh, they 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 were pretty good, I would say. All in all, not not a not a horrible, not bad, not bad, yeah, not a horrible musical outfit. Um, I've been uh, digging into you know you got the summertime coming, and I've been dig- digging into an album we did many many episodes ago, which was the finale from. The Doors, little LA woman. It's good stuff. Yeah. It's good yeah. stuff. Even if you're not that into The Doors, it's some good shit right there from those guys. My third one, I'm just going to go with, uh, you know, again, a little summertime selection. And let's just go with a little Steely Dan doing uh, Asia. That's what's round and round for me, gents. What do you got? I got to say that Asia has been something that's been back on my uh, radar as uh, Steely Dan. You know, the more you're, you're, the more you know about music, the more impressive those guys are. No doubt. No doubt. Now, if I want to wake up my uh, mood, I guess I'll just say there were three things that I've played, you know, throughout the years just to kind of get me back in that I never get sick of it. Led Zeppelin presence. I never get sick of. I don't know. It's such a weird record made under duress very quickly. I just really love the, you know, obviously the the pasted together smacked out guitar solos are something that I just totally dig. I, I never get tired of it. Another one that I sort of grew up on is uh, CZ Top's De Cueo with uh, Cheap Sunglasses, all that. Oh, great album. Uh, I was uh, obviously I was a Van Halen fan and there was uh I read something about uh, David Lee Roth was hanging out. He was seen somewhere uh, with a jukebox on his shoulder, cranking uh, that record just when he came out. Anything's easy top. I'm still all for. I was uh, listening to uh, one of these things where you play a song and then Apple music chooses like, what you probably are going to like as well. Yeah. The one that they played was, uh, it was a Hendrix. So I'm going with all the classic rock, but 
without choosing it or choosing to listen to it. Um, it was uh, Buddha Child. The, the, the album version was that spit it out after I played uh, ZZ Top the other day. And I just really got into listening to that solo guitar. Just, you know, I've still, because I listened to it so many times, that's something that I, I always sort of speaks to me is those classic rock. I, I, you know, what can I say? That's my era. This was all stuff that I was on the radio when I was a kid. The, the Apple thing played a Kiss song that I'd never heard before, which was amazing. It was a real... I, I tuned out of Kiss. They have a song called Rip It Up or Get It Up. It was one of those shout outs. Lick, oh, it, lick it Up? Yeah. Lick, lick I, It Up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, what is it? It's Paul Stanley. That is a killer track. Yeah. It's great. I probably heard it in the background, but I'm like, you know, sometimes this, this AI stuff isn't so bad. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's true. You know, the, the, the robot sometimes makes some bad calls, but they get it right a little bit too. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks King for that. It's awesome to hear your picks for me. Uh, I tuned into a little gang of four entertainment this week. I think it's one of the, uh, one of the better debut albums ever made. I'm not sure gang of four ever achieved anything quite as amazing as entertainment, but love that record and revisit it pretty often. We had some friends over and we needed to find something that was a bit neutral to put on the turntable. So we went with Coldplay as requested, A Rush of Blood to the Head. And that is an outstanding record. It's been a little while since I really listened to it top to bottom. And it's really, really good. It, it's got hits on it, but really the album tracks are the things that stand out. And then a little bit of dream theater for me, because uh, I'm a prog guy, King, and that would be uh, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence was an album that I checked out during this past week. And T, that is what is round and round for me. So I think it's saturation time. So I think we should dive in. And uh, T, why don't we just get going right, right off the bat with the uh, Nerdy Deets Dunder Cheap. Let's do it. You want some Dirty Deets? Yeah. <laughs> Saturation is the fourth album from Urge Overkill. I, I bet you there's a, quite a few people out there that thought that this was the debut effort uh, because it was the major label debut, but it was the fourth album from Urge Overkill. As we've already talked with King about, the band was on Touch and Go Records for those first three it was released. On June 8th of 1993, so as mentioned, we were 13 years old. It is on Geffen Records, and it was produced by the Butcher Brothers, of which I had to do a little bit of extra research, and I found that that is Phil and Joe. Is it Nicolo or Nicolo? I don't know how to say it, King. Phil and Joe Nicolo. Nicolo. King, tell us a little bit about how the Butcher Brothers came on board and what they brought to the table in terms of the sound of saturation. So. Uh... It, it's a really interesting story. We little known to us, there was a guy following our career who had been at at Geffen, who was from a, a different. He, he wasn't from the same part of the company as like the Sonic Youth, uh, uh, Nirvana guys. That was a different like A and R guy. And this this guy, this was a guy who'd grown up around L.A. was uh, was into being a DJ and, and just had really uh, great taste in music. Um, he was a Brian Ferry fan. He insisted we buy some vintage synthesizers and stuff like that. Just, you know, a pretty cool guy who had, had found himself, I think, working under some of the metal guys over there at Geffen. But for whatever reason, we, we 
we found out that he'd been sort of trying to reach us. It wasn't the easiest thing to track somebody down back then. He had the idea to put, pair us up with, uh, I guess there was a, they were, they were a production duo, but Joe had, they were Philly guys. Uh, they were, they were twins, I believe. Uh, they didn't look, they weren't identical twins, but, uh, one of them was more working with rock guys and sort of a, was a Beatles technology aficionado of those recording techniques. The other guy was working with Sony, Sony and did a lot of work on the Cypress Hill stuff and had a relationship with mugs. So he was the, the DJ who came up with a lot of the Cypress Hill beats and he had also produced Schooly D. And for some reason, this guy, uh, Mio, imagined us hooking up with somebody from the hip hop world. And this was during the time, like we would, we would have been pretty, it would be when sort of Wu-Tang clan was, was getting, there, there was some, in our minds, there was some crossover between playing a lot more hip hop. And we were, you know, we were living in, in the, on the West side of Chicago with, with a lot of, you know, our neighbors were basically Puerto Rican gang members who were you know we were sort of picking up all kinds of stuff from that they were trying to figure out what we were doing you know and and we we got in pretty deep with the you know supposed i guess we thought of ourselves as as sort of uh real outlaws at the time i don't know if doing illegal drugs every day makes you an outlaw but uh <laughs> you know i i guess what had happened is uh We'd secured a, a building that was an old bank. Once we got our deal and everything, and we sort of set it up as a clubhouse, we made a, a plan to record with the Butcher Brothers. This had been all happened in a whirlwind after we we sort of toured with Nirvana. Uh, they they had, I think, maybe asked us at the last minute to do some dates. And we went out with in the Midwest with, with them in, in 91. That sort of allowed us to get the interest in the financing from somebody else, you know, at the same company. We pretty much talked to every label that you could ever imagine and many that don't exist right now to, you know, figure out who we wanted to, to, to do the record with. And, and especially for dudes like us, you know, we're, I think, I think, you know, we're up in Michigan and this is where we grew up. There was also kind of a Midwest kinship, I think, between, you know, guys like us and bands like yours, where the Seattle thing was cool. There was kind of a foreign attitude to it that, you know, we weren't really used to, but it was cool seeing you guys with your humor approach your tongue-in-cheek approach not taking yourself seriously right it was kind of refreshing even back then and i think that that's one of the things that's really cool looking backward at, at you guys's sort of impact around that time there were no rules you did it your way and you did it in this this really cool not take yourself seriously tongue-in-cheeky way and 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 i appreciate that today and I even think even at my dumbass age of 13, I kind of appreciated it too. Right. It was, you know, it, it wasn't like a put on, you know, you can't manufacture that kind of humor that those, those things that, 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 that stuff developed over the weeks that we were 
we were working and I've got to say that the butchers, I think were in a point in their career where they had nothing to prove. They weren't gonna, we actually would play jokes on the, uh, the A&R guy. He would come, we would literally record like a joke song, try to make it as bad as possible. And, and we'd be all serious. Like, what do you think? And, <laughs> and uh, I think the, the song, uh, there's a hidden track, the one about uh, Kissinger. That was one of the tunes we were like, well, how do you think of the new direction? I think uh, Operation Kissinger is on saturation rather than uh, rather than the next one. Right. Yeah. It's the hidden track on saturation. Joke we played on the. the, the <laughs> That's awesome. The best one we got. And he literally he was like, you know, I guess I'm getting the new direction. And it's like, man, we should have seen your face. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's really yeah. good. Can I ask you one other Midwesty question? Just super yeah. random. Um, the Stoll EP, which came out yep. shortly after Saturation, I, I, you can see my shirt. I went to KU, which is in Lawrence, Kansas. Was, is there a connection to Lawrence or how did you guys pick that as the, um, the, the visual and as the EP title? There's a total, it did happen. Uh, so that, that actually did come out before all the Geffen stuff happened. There was a guy who who was who put out Liz Fair's music, who was from Kansas, living in the neighborhood right around the, the corner. His name was John. He was putting out a bunch of uh, New Zealand bands. You'll find out who he is, but he he put out the very first like sort of girly sessions or girly tapes when Liz was nobody. She was hanging out at the bar and she didn't tell anybody she was doing music. You know, she was a paint. She had been a an art major and she was doing paintings and stuff. And the, the rainbow was like the artists sort of like from the eighties, it was more like the art Institute weirdos bar rather than like this rock place where we ended up kind of taking over that, that bar and the nightlife and what it was right across the street from the, the urge crib. But he had a pal, we hung around with them called Tony uh, moved to Kansas and was living out on a farm and we were touring. Uh, we were on a regular tour during the touch and go days and we stayed overnight on his farm. And he told us about this haunted, you know, supposedly haunted corner. It's basically the, a non-existent town with a cemetery. And, and there's a few stalls buried there. So it just says stall, you know, this, this like, it's really mysterious, but you know, we were, we were, I think mushrooms were involved and, <laughs> you know, there was some paranoia where we were driving to this stall in the middle of the night. Basically we scared the shit out of ourselves by getting too high and, and convincing ourselves that we were in. And that song stall is about sort of driving to stall, you know, expecting this sort of scary, I don't know what happened, but we, we, we scared ourselves and turned around and it sort of, made itself into a song. I don't know if you want to hear this, but somebody at the University of Kansas was researching urban myths and basically decided to create this urban myth, Stall, that Stall was a gate, one of the seven gates to hell, and spread it out in the community. And pretty soon the college students were talking about this place, Stall. And this could have been back in the 70s, that it was literally like a a manufactured urban myth. We went there because it was legendarily one of the seven gates of hell, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
we got to go there. You know, <laughs> the thing that makes stall so cool is we sent that guy, John, when he was living in Chicago, we, we said, we need a picture of this cemetery stall. And he came back with the image was so haunting. It just, I don't know if we were thinking about naming a record after, but, but he came back with this image of this cemetery that was so iconic and so cool. It's like, we're just going to go with stall. It's just so weird. <laughs> that that's, that's awesome. And you know, you mentioned the Neil Diamond cover. I've always kind of wondered King, you know, obviously that hits so big. And for those of us that, I mean, I was listening to AmeriCruiser, you know, around this time of being a teenager as well. And I actually think that was my first introduction to something that was a bit more raw, you know, and because at that point, you know, you were getting into heavy production. I mean, this grunge stuff was cool and stripped down. But if you listen back to it now, it's like, holy shit, this stuff's really produced. So it was AmeriCruiser was some of my early introduction to something that's a bit more stripped down. And then you get through saturation and, you know, you guys obviously had some, some, um, commercial songs and those type of things, which were all great. And then suddenly you've got this massive hit and it's a, it's a great arrangement. And obviously, you know, Again, in the spirit of you guys not taking yourself too seriously, you go out there with this Neil Diamond song. And was that a cool thing for you guys? Were you like, all right, like this is lucrative. This is cool. This is, you know, getting us to the mainstream. Or were you kind of like, eh, like this is a little weird, you know, <laughs> what, what was that time period like post saturation when you had the, the, you know, uh, the, the big hit with the Neil Diamond cover? Well, that's a great question because it it was possibly something that where six, where the type of success you have, you can't, you want to go for, you know, doing what was the right thing. It it was a bit of a roller coaster. And I want to lay this out because it's really is interesting. And it's uh, was sort of a a crucial thing in the fortunes of of, the overall fortunes of urge that was a good news, bad news sort of situation where what happened is uh, we were familiar with Reservoir Dogs and the brilliance of the use of music in that. And uh, we had been really uh, happy with, with Geffen and they had people working there or largely uh, urge was like number one house band. And they worked so hard to, to get that record to, to really hit in the way that it sort of needed to. So if you can believe this at the time, the, the time that we, that this thing with the Pulp Fiction came along, first of all, nobody had any idea that Pulp Fiction was going to be like a worldwide uh, thing that made soundtracks sort of cool again and was like a, a quotable that, that it would enter the pantheon. We were flown out and the screen, the movie with our song cut into it and they lengthened the song, you know, it's, it's edited so that it's backs this overdose scene. And we were just like, this is too cool. You know, we can't, we can't say no to this. Obviously we want to have a, a, we would have preferred to have a song that we wrote, but no, no song, no original song was going to be in the movie. No band that was even playing uh, was in the movie. 
And we found out subsequently that they asked Neil Diamond to use his version. And because it involved drugs, he said no. Really? Huh. And we were we were told, and this is classic uh, myth making. uh, Tarantino said, oh, I love these guys. I came across this record at a used record store in Amsterdam. And there was some mythology that where he had said something and where we found out that that's not what happened is that they were dying to get. If you listen to all the music on Pulp Fiction, none of it's new. They just lucked out. They're like, you mean there's a cover of this thing? And and after that had fallen through, they they called us. And I guess we had no idea that it would be the single for the because there were no other bands, uh, no other modern bands were. You know, you weren't going to get like the, you know, the, the, some of the surf bands, they, 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 the, the music was chosen for the tracks, but the bands weren't going to be able to go out and say, we're going to, you know, promote this. They wanted an active band. Nobody knew it was going to be a big hit or anything like that. But I think what, what that, what that did is, you know, put in the public consciousness a song that we really did as a laugh and and you listen to it it's charming and there are elements to it that i would i would never change but if we had a choice to to put out a record or a, a song that was part of a major movie it would have been like one of our new rock songs you know and it was kind of hard to peg you know people's idea of the band was our our sort of carefully honed idea of where we were going kind of got consumed by this fact that this, and it also was an international hit. So it allowed us to uh, go and play even for years later, we would be able to to go and, and do well in some other overseas markets and things like that. But I, I, one thing I do have to say is, and this is incredible when I think back on it, as well as saturation did for what they put into it. I think the way, the reason we agreed to it so readily as exit, the dragon was in the can and they had sort of found out some of the stuff that we were up to, you know, Kurt was dead from drugs and they were in some marketing meeting. And I think they, they were like, they got some bad reports about us, like not speaking, you know, the, the, the come down from saturation and, the expectations that it was going to be this million selling record, like the, the people, the people at the label were like, you guys are going to be, you know, get ready. And I think created some expectations that just didn't because of the nature of the band and, and our, or our non ability to really focus and, and get like a great um, non multi, we were all over the place. We were sort of undisciplined with our, our art and our imagery and, we were just having, you know, we were not rock professionals, anything but that. I mean, that was death to us. We got the word from on high that they they probably weren't going to be psyched about putting the same effort into uh, Exit the Dragon. You know, we felt it was artistic success. It reflected the dark period that came after, you know, the high, the like the helium high of of the saturation period. And it was dark and we were not having a great time anymore. And it it was sort of a saving grace because we kind of knew what was coming down the line is that uh, 
Exit the Dragon was was not going to get the same treatment. It was a different environment. And they're like, we don't want anything to do with any of this drugs stuff. And nobody knew it yet. But we knew that we were going to be coming on sort of hard times. And, you know, had it had it not happened the way it had, I sort of wonder what our future with the label might have been. It caused a lot of internal uh divisions within the band the way that played out mm. that beat our signature song wasn't the plan yeah exactly and you know what was the so you say you know obviously there was a lot of external stuff going on how has you and nash's relationship been over the long game i mean are you guys are you guys buddies are you just are, are you musical partners you know how 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 has that sort of been uh, over the years creatively and just i mean obviously you guys have been t- playing together for a long time so what's that dynamic like like at this you know moment we we did have a a classic falling out that was uh you know between you know we we disbanded basically and we kind of rebanded to play a couple of shows and ended up doing a recording uh rock and roll submarine and it yeah. all it all came back to you, you, you really start out, you know, best pals, then you're sort of like business partners. And then it's, then you're like an old married couple. So it's after a while, it's, I think our relationship is good now. And uh, we're just sort of look back. We're amazed that so many things have happened right because we, we were just so all over the place and everything's happened so fast that we were quite unprepared for that first uh on geffen onslaught you know yeah yeah are you back in the midwest king or or do you live in the chicago area or yes that's great that's cool see let's take the opportunity now with king with us to go track by track and drop the needle on saturation let's do it Saturation begins with quite the dynamic track and certainly one of my favorite songs from the decade. And that is the opening Sister Havana. King for starters, just what a riff, you know, and the song is built around just an absolute classic riff. Yeah. I think that the the riff was, uh, that was largely inspired and mostly Nash and Blackie came up with that from sort of, we had been on that tour with Nirvana and it's like, okay, we need something really simple, you know, that's just like as straightforward as you can imagine as, as a, you know, central thing to a song. And we, we, it was sort of a self-consciously simplified rock riff uh, that, that we didn't have to mess with too much. Of course, putting in the bridge and all that, came later but there's a lot of details in it that that are uh like that swell in there that's an organ a lot of stuff kind of you know we weren't used to playing to a like a click track but when you put that click track in there um somebody sort of as a joke put it put a uh cowbell in there we're like oh we got to keep that in there yes (laughs) yes that's like a total uh, synthetic cowbell, you know, it's just playing along with the computer. It's like, man, yeah, that was our first song that we properly worked out every detail, you know, where, where you're, you're sort of like 
we're going to work on this too until it's done. Yeah, you have that kind of sitar layer too, which which I think appears in a few other spots on the on the record. And that middle section is so effective. I I love the bridge in this song. Those guys really had some classic uh, tricks in terms of how you build out a song like that in in ways that we maybe always wanted to do. But he's sort of they're sort of like, well, here's here's some of the tricks that you know they had an organ there and we did the organ swell and and you know the the drums are mic'd just so so they don't take up too much room all this sort of stuff that allowed them to to sort of show us how it's done you know it was just a lot of fun to to hear the result on the speakers there really was no doubt that that was like the obvious first you know single thing on there oh yeah track two in my opinion see one of the great uses of the synthesizer sound and that is tequila sunday this uh i gotta say I, i i learned guitar playing along with saturation and many other records and this was the first time i learned how to bend a power chord so right yeah, it's it's not easy to do the first time. And and we were for years, we were like, man, we we were thinking about playing this live for sure. That is a chair. You know, you really have to sit down to play that properly. So here we are trying to play this thing for years standing up and it's just pretty hard to do. That's the whole bending of the whole chord is what makes it. And King, I'm a drummer, and I can't tell you how many times I did the the fill that he does during that break that Blackie did was so cool. And there's like one or two extra beats is the key on there. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The mixing of that song, I'm not entirely happy with. And I was sort of getting, you know, whatever you can get to perfectionist about this stuff. So I was, as the primary architect of the song, I was banned from the mixing for, for, for the day. And those guys all took mushrooms and mixed the song. (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong, right? What could go wrong? Yeah, that's why. So whatever it stuck, but, but we had bought this vintage mood synthesizer and it's like, well, we got to use it somewhere. And so that has, that's the, that's the synthesizer doing the weird sound. I love that sound. I think it's so cool. It is cool. And you know what? The, the synth thing, it you know it goes back to AmeriCruiser, and that was one of the things that struck me about it. With this, it was this raw record. But you guys used some keys and some synthesizers at a time where, and now everybody's doing the the layer thing. You guys were kind of doing that experimentally at a time where where layering that on top of you know pure rock wasn't really um, being done. And I, obviously, Butch produced yeah. that record and may have had something to do with it. But you guys were pretty clever and innovative. Even though, I, you know, you weren't trying to like set the world on fire, but I think you did come up with some pretty innovative sounds for Beck at that time. I, I've got to give some props to, to Nash because he was his dad was like a choir, a church choir director, if you can believe it. So in Minneapolis, um, but he had knowledge or more. He was more excited about putting horn charts and 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 keyboard. I, I was like, Mr. Strip it down, like, don't do that. But <laughs> He had the horn. He had a way to play the horn parts uh, on Empire Builder. He had that all worked out. I mean, we didn't have time to mess around on that stuff, but he's like, 
we've got to put this stuff in there. And he had other ideas that were, we really had no time to do, but he insisted that Butch find a way to do it. It it was cool. It, It was, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's sort of like a marriage. I feel like you two guys like the they're the chemistry creatively and the way you complemented each other. Cause yeah, you're raw rock and roll, which is such a great part of the urge, such an important part of the urge sound. And then he kind of brought some of these polished elements that over time you saw more and more bands doing. You guys did a lot of that stuff early. You guys complemented each other really well creatively. Yeah. And and I think working with the people who were sort of willing to go with those ideas quickly just kind of say, well, we'll try it. And the butchers were, were great at that. Um, knowing what to leave in and, and, and all that. I mean, it wasn't a terribly fraught process, uh, saturation. It just kind of rolled along and we, we really didn't have a whole lot of, you know, there was some drama involved, of course, but, uh, that what you hear is that, that excite, that genuine excitement is like, this is really working. Like this is really fun. And to get that through on a recording, a sound recording where you put the interstitial part in there, that's one of the things I'm most proud of that we were, you know, that's going to live forever. Almost a perfect way to describe track three in the second single off the album, positive bleeding. So we just gave some props to Nash. Let's continue with that. Great vocal performance from Nash Cato on this song. You were sort of more the primary singer in the albums leading up to Saturation. How did it develop where Nash would take over a little bit more of the lead vocals on this album? You know, I think that was just had to do with who had the, you know, more songs at the time, the living arrangements at the time and things like that. And I, I think... I'm a pretty impatient person and I sort of want to bang it out. So I'm not really willing to sit there all day to get the, I'm not always happy about getting the details right or working on it till the details are right. One thing about the vocal track on this is that, you know, the, the partying was happening and we were up all night, you know, eating spicy food and all that. And everybody's voice was trash, but Nash had a secret weapon. He, he had met a, uh, a young lady who was a nurse who, who basically took him over the weekend before we did the vocals for this, basically took him out somewhere out in the country. And it was like, you're not going to smoke for three days and you're just going to sit there and get you in shape because he was not ready to, to sing some of these major songs. So that was a, that was an effort that really paid off is to say, okay, this is fun, but you have to like not talk for a few days. And he sort of went to a short uh, weekend recovery trip and came back and nailed the vocals. And in- <laughs> that's great. Do, do you remember, was this one, um, as far as putting the, it's a hell of a song, by the way. I mean, this one will live on forever yeah. right? as far as one of the better, you know, kind of singles of, of, of that time period. Did you guys collaborate on the the um, composition here, or was this a song that one of one or the other of you guys kind of took lead on? This was of of the more collaborative ones, where we definitely remember um, the chorus was, I think the 
one of us had the chorus and one of us had the, you know, we wrote it as a duo sitting, sitting somewhere in Chicago. And we did gradually add some details to it. So that was a song that that was there was more time put into that and Sister Havana, because those just obviously came off as as being really having first time listening potential. So there are tons of details in that, too, that that we we worked to get just so. Track four, we finally get to hear from the king. We get the king lead vocal on Back on Me. Just solid piece of songwriting. Nice flow. It's a very smooth song and, and a catchy chorus. Tell us about Back on Me. Man, that was just, uh, yeah, so m- more of a thing that was written while, while we were there, just kind of messing around at, at night. I sort of pretty much came up with, with that one and, and everybody else sort of fleshed it out and uh, ended up having more you know, it was one of the first songs where we we had layers of acoustics and a lot of things going on and, and like the like the cool bell thing in there. That's sort of Nash. I remember the the guitar solo was kind of an off the cuff thing that just kind of I didn't know what I was going to play and hit a couple sort of really super sweet notes that we just kept. And, uh, you know, it's one of those that just ended up uh, falling in place. That was uh, pretty much a joy to to record, but it was fun to to have something where we could have uh, acoustic and electric take over. Speaking of fun, track five picks it up with "Woman to Woman." It's a jam. Yeah, yeah. If my glasses didn't fly off during Crack Babies, they would have during this song. You know, <laughs> yeah, the, I remember, the crowd really liked this one. Yeah, you guys hit this live, and everyone just went ballistic. It was good stuff. Yeah, well, we needed a, a fast. Uh, we needed a rocker or two in there, and uh, yeah, I can't recall if that was something we ever did a demo for or what. But that that came that came together pretty quick, and. Uh, I, I think that was pretty much uh, Blackie and Nash kind of had worked this thing out. And then there was a really hard bass line that, that Nash had conceived of, but couldn't really play. And there was some time spent on that. That's got a really tough to play bass line that you can fake, but on the record, it really comes out. So it sounds like Blackie contributed pretty heavily. I mean, I think his vocals are, you know, especially on dropout and some of the other things, but it sounds like he contributed pretty heavily at times to the composition here. So it wasn't just you and Nash uh, writing most of the material. Certainly by that point, he he was a real help in terms of kind of breaking the, you know, he had definite opinions that, that were, and I think the personality in, in the, some of the, the tracks like that, that one that we did have techniques to make the drumming, uh, sort of edit some air out of it. It's a really time consuming process where, you know, all these bands, apparently those guys told us, Oh, the stone Zeppelin did all this. Like, really? They fixed their drum tracks. I can't, they're like, Oh yeah, everybody does it. So 
we put together some of this drum tracks to make them sound superhuman, but not like something like this woman to woman. That's just, that's how it actually sounds. And it's got some elasticity to it that makes it really exciting. Yeah, for sure. What What's he up to? Are you, are you guys in touch with him anymore or is he playing music or? I don't know if he's playing much music, but he's alive and well. Yeah. Cool. Track six concludes side one. If you're listening to the vinyl version of saturation, and that is the rather tender missing the smell of her bottle of fur. You guys love of old school, true rock and roll just comes through in so many ways in the way that you riff and the rhythms that you choose in bottle of fur is a great example of that. Yeah. Is there, is there a little T-Rex going on here? I mean, it's a, that's a nice, that's a nice bluesy riff. That is the glam beat and yeah, not, not real fashionable at the time, but that was, uh, that was a song that we had that we had uh, demoed back in, uh, Chicago. So that, that pretty much was written. And, you know, the, the studio version has some bells in the chorus and some nice acoustic guitar and stuff, but that was another song that was pretty much done, you know, and that became a live standard, but we had that one, not too many arguments about that one. Recording it came out pretty well. It's so cool. I mean, there's that bluesy kind of choppy thing, but it's a really pretty chorus. I mean, the thing I always liked about it, even back then, it was this dichotomy of this kind of blues cruncher, which I always felt like maybe was your part. And then this more kind of sweeping strummy, uh, dare I say it kind of beautiful sounding chorus part. Is that kind of what you guys were going for or did it just end up that way? I, now I understand what it is. It's, it's, it's like, a major seventh chord it's the harmonies are very close so you're singing a harmony that's one note separated from the other guy so it has to oh, it only works on one part of the scale but that it's it has to be put into a song just right to to make it sound you know not weird so you, you have to sing that that it, it's it's just a matter of using a closer like maybe more of a steely dan type harmony that's that's a little more sophisticated than your average song. And again, I, I have to point to that's, that's, you know, Nash sort of knew about that stuff from his, his choir experience at the time. I really wasn't sure what made it the way, but now I know, you know, a lot more about music. So that's cool. That's cool. Never stop learning. Right. Side two begins with, I think probably the darkest, maybe heaviest thing and the song to break your glasses to. Yeah. opened our show and what opened side two, which is crack babies. Huge drum sound from Blackie, big guitars. This one's just a monster. Great show opener. I, I guess we should thank you decades later on choosing such a fantastic way to open your show for us. Well, I, I had this pretty, this kind of sick, ag- aggressive riff, which was just kind of a musical idea. And uh, that creepy piano thing was something that was composed by Nash after the song was done. It was sort of like, well, we need something that's, you know, what else can we do to this? 
And it, it was pretty much a musical idea. And we were sort of like, what could this song even be about? And I remember this, uh, you know, such was the environment at the studio was one of the brothers was like, you know, it, it's, we knew it was a killer song. We sort of had, you know, we didn't have words really. He's like, I, I hear crack baby. I, I, I hear crack babies in this. And we're like, okay. <laughs> and that came together like five minutes later. We're like, okay, it's crack babies. <laughs> One of those butchers just threw out a term and it worked. Love it. So nowadays they call track seven stoner rock, which has become a genre in itself. I think you guys sort of almost invented it with track seven, seven which is the stalker. I mean, King bands create albums of this type of sound now. Back then, it wasn't called that. But to me, it sounds like what, what the kids now called sto- call stoner rock. Yeah, who, who says that Smashing Pumpkins was the fuzz band out of Chicago? I mean, I'm, you know. This, that, the story for Stalker is, uh, it sound, the, the weird uh, drum and guitar part, that is, that is Blackie and myself one afternoon we just kicked it out in a, in a matter of like an hour in the basement of the bank. And it was so creepy and weird. We took it to Philadelphia and tried to improve on it and there was no improving on it. So we basically redid the vote. We, we did the vocals and put, put that, that little white noise machine in there. And we added a few things to it, but we tried to play it in the studio and it just didn't, it didn't sound scary. So we imported the tracks from the A track and added the vocals and some of the, just the other noise parts. But, and then I figured out what it, what it was years later is that I had the, I never used the neck pickup on the guitar, but that's what it was by mistake that the neck pickup was on. And I, I, I know now, but I never figured that out when we were trying to redo the song. So we could never get the right sound or the right sort of feeling that something's wrong and the tempo's always changing and stuff. So that was just like a one-off miracle that we sort of decided to save. That song took no time, but, you know, a couple of the songs took, you know, a week. So that was, that was something that maybe not a lot of bands would do is just preserve that sort of scary element. And I'm glad we did. Blackie steps up with, I, I think this was the encore T if I remember at the show, it's amazing how well we remember that show. That's how good it was. I, I don't know. I couldn't see. So I, not, <laughs> I think I it was remember. the encore and Blackie stepped up to the mic and did track eight, which is dropout. I mean, King, you guys are just covering so much ground on this album. It's such a well-rounded album. This is getting into electronics and this sort of danceable backbeat and, and Blackie's voice bringing something new to the table. Tell us about Dropout. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of my faves. And I, I think that the genesis of it was uh, Butcher. Joe was working with this guy, Muggs, and he had, he had hours of these beats that he would build on the MP digital workstation. Those were what you did hip hop on. And he had just built up a lot of these tracks and was just kind of, sometimes we would come in and he would have them cranking on the, on the, uh, 
on the stereo because he was doing other stuff as, as he was as they were producing this record. So we were listening through stuff like that. And I think that was that beat sort of gave we had an acoustic guitar. And I'm pretty sure Blackie just kind of came up with that first chorus or the idea like, you know, I want to use that and just play this simple thing over it. And pretty much left him to his devices. So he, uh, you know, we all got together and did the final touches on it, but he kind of worked it up from the, from the sampled beats that Joe had been building up that he kind of had lying around. So that was kind of blacking and Joe for the most part. It holds up extremely well. You know, if you, if you go on satellite radio and listen to these like modern alt nation type I mean, this is what you're hearing, you know, uh, you know, 25 years later. I mean, it's it's pretty cool. Again, I, I mentioned it earlier, but this was one of the things that you dug back then, clearly. But now you're looking back and saying, geez, like this, it's amazing how a couple of these tracks where you guys sort of at the time maybe seemed like you were going off the beaten path a bit here in 2021. I mean, that shit, it's what you're hearing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it it was obviously working. You know, it's like I don't think we were going to force ourselves to put something with a beat on there or but it was kind of our our it was in the air in Philly and we were sort of like, you know, we're going to use some of this stick some of this in there somehow. And I think it was a very tasteful way of and and also is a sort of an image uh, kind of a we didn't do that one to death. You know, it's you listen to it. It's not perfectly. And it's just sort of uh, something that just kind of works. But there's still some innocence where we're sort of the stakes aren't that high. You know, it's supposed to be sort of a fun idea. And I think, yeah, we, we just ended up using that as an encore. A lot of times, you know, we had a loop of the the beat. So we would just play the beat over the PA and you know, let Blackie take it away. So that was, that was cool. The album starts to sort of reach its ending with a song that meant a lot to us because we had a mom who watched all my children. So we were very familiar with Erica Kane and wait to talk about the middle section of this song. Let's get into Erica Kane. It's such a cool twist. I mean, you got kind of got your like thumping opening, but when it drops out into this cut time deal in the middle, I just think it gives the song so much taste. Right. He's he's like, bring in the butcher. I know I don't know what that in what way the butcher is coming in there or what, but it's yeah. The tempo change was such a it's one of those things that sometimes you put two unlike things together and just works after a while, but you know, I've, I've got to say that that the middle part wasn't totally obvious to me which way we were going to bring that. And there's a piano in there and all that. I was probably, um, you know, frowning into my soup during that part. <laughs> you know, well, it wor- well, it worked for us. <laughs> yeah, it worked. It it's, remains a very popular tune when we play it live. So. And we get to hear from King again on the lead vocals with uh, the second to last track, Night and Gray. One of my favorite songs, just musically, and, and you know, I'm a sucker for vintage synths. 
Yeah. Is that like a Fender Rhodes going through some kind of treatment or you're, you're, you're just cooking there, King. Yeah. I love yeah. That. You guys are cooking on this. That was something that just kind of went down really fast. And, uh, you know, the, the, the keyboard is not a, that wasn't something we really knew how to, how to do, but, uh, you know, the butchers had all that stuff lying around and it was no big deal to just kind of say, well, let's, let's, let's put a fan. That's a Rhodes, uh, with, with, uh, usually they put it through a phase shifter. So that's, that's pretty much all that is. But when you put it in the right place, it's undeniable. Yeah. There's just so many different places you can put it and make it sound good on any genre of music. Yeah. It really brings it all together. And what brings saturation all together is the closer. How nineties heaven nine Oh two one Oh. Heaven 90210. King, tell us about that one and the way that Saturation closes. Well, that was the first thing recorded for Saturation. That was the trial run when we uh, decided we should drive out to Philly. Uh, You know, we took 80 all the way out there and uh, celebrated on the way back. You know, it's just a very organic, like live performance of the you know, it's it's the orange and this amp that we always use with a very had a real sort of clean, almost harsh cutting sound to it. And just to hear we've never heard the Neve treatment on our own music, like I said, but just the sound of the drums and all the the all the stuff. Uh, that's that's the sound. That's the song that convinced us that these guys would really do well with our record. And they, you know, there are some very subtle treatments that they've got to showcase and we probably wouldn't have done on our own. There was a little bar we stopped by, we were listening to it and we stopped at a place called Tiny's in Illyria, Ohio. It was like a factory town on the way back. And we were, I just remember thinking, we're we're driving. Uh, it was getting to be easy, evening, so we decided it was time to stop at a bar and drink some whiskey. So we got involved in like this crazy dance party at this bar in Illyria, Ohio. <laughs> but we were just really jazzed after that. Um, and I've never been back there to see it, but there was like a steppers party or something like that. But that might have been the only time when we're, we drove, you know, we we drove out there, you know, little old urge and driving back and sort of hearing that tune pretty much done. Like as you hear it as something that we did in a few days that just didn't exist a few days before we were like, you know, this something magical is going to happen. And it, it did. And, you know, thanks for your, uh, you know, acknowledgement of that. Well, magical is, is I think a perfect word to describe this album and and what it's meant to see. I think I can speak for us, both of us. I mean, this truly is one of our favorites and it has been such a thrill to have you join us. We really appreciate the extra time and we appreciate all the stories and perspective. Any final reflections or anything that, uh, that you'd say about the album just to wrap up your time with us? Well, um, we, you know, it, it did, uh, change, uh, 
it, it gained us a lot of fans in the uh, the way that we got to meet people that we never thought we would meet uh, a great fan. And to this day of the album was Chrissy Hine. And we ended up meeting her through this. And it was a whole crazy thing where she showed up at our T-shirt booth one night and sort of was with the band for a few months after that. Uh, a lot of shenanigans. We were able to meet Joe Strummer and have some good times with him as well through the this recording and countless other people who uh, it remains on their list. So that's a good feeling. Well, we, I'll echo nubs. Thanks so much. You took extra time with us. We really, really appreciate it. And, and thanks for not just the tunes, but the personality that you guys brought to this time period. You know, it was very unique. Us Midwest guys loved it. And it's one of those, you guys are special because at the time you knew it was unique. And now you look back at it and you, you, it just affirms that you guys were doing things your own way, a little bit differently. Uh, with some humor and all those things that us Midwestern rock and rollers like, and, uh, and, and very appreciative of everything you guys uh, brought to this time period. And still today, I hear you're recording new stuff, a follow-up to rock and roll submarine and God can't wait for that. I thought that latest recording you guys did was really good. We, yeah. It, it was a gamble at the time to use the guy known for producing schoolie D to work on the urge overkill and his twin brother. So, but uh yeah, I can't imagine it working out any other way. And, you know, we were we stuck with them for the next record. It was almost a much darker view, but uh, we feel like the production was also really great on that one, too. So thanks, gentlemen. Thank you, King. And when you're back in Detroit, uh, wherever you play, hopefully it's sometime soon, you'll see two twins going crazy. Uh, in the crowd and we will try not to break glasses or hurt knees this time around. Cause we're older guys now. So, you know, we got to take care of ourselves. Well, come, come by and say hi afterwards. We will for sure. We will. And thank you so much for your time, King. Take care of yourself. Thanks King. Well, T joined by royalty on episode 48, the King. Yeah, that was cool, man. That was very cool to talk through that and, you know, get, get Eddie, the King's perspective on, past, present, and even future times with Urge Overkill. Those guys are, uh, he didn't want to, he didn't want to give us too much on the new recording, but rumor has it, those guys are doing some new material. Certainly can't wait for that. It's always cool to hear, especially someone that came from more of like an indie circle, appreciate the height of the success. You know, it's, I could see some bands and some artists maybe not digging those eras as much or thinking that it's cool to not dig it, but it was, it was really neat to hear the stories and such great recollection of really like the commercial peak of this band. All right, see, well, we got to wrap up episode 48 with how we always wrap things up, which is to find out three songs that are ringing in your head with in your head. All right, see what's in your head. All right, buddy. Well, I got something from uh, a, a beloved band uh, of both of ours. It's uh, the Secret Machines. And this is a it's a Bob Dylan cover. But, you know, part of me wishes they would have just had it be their own song because it's such a unique arrangement. You'd never know that they're doing Girl from the North Country, but they did uh, use the lyrics and the vocal line. And, you know, it, but it's a it's a gorgeous. I mean, those of you that even remotely uh, dig the work of Bob Dylan, but also dig space rock. If you have both those, you know, if you have both of those uh, tools in your armor, 
you know, check out this version of Girl from the North Country. It is just absolutely gorgeous from uh, obviously an outstanding band. Uh, the second I'm going to go, you know, I touched on them during the episode and uh, another band from Chicago. This is the Smashing Pumpkins doing Rhinoceros, which was one of those strong tracks on the album Gish, uh, which is outstanding. So we'll give Chicago another little shout out there. And the third is, you know, you've talked about U2 and how you're picky about your U2. I'm extremely picky about U2. But the opening track to Octung Baby Zoo Station is a brilliant track from those fellas who every so often got it right. That's what's in my head. Nubs, what is in that melon of yours, big guy? Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to start with a, a band that we referenced during the episode as well, and that is The Doors. And an album that you mentioned, which is LA Woman. And everyone should check out LA Woman, our, our episode, one of the earlier podcast episodes that we did on that classic from the doors and the opening track, The Changeling. Yeah. I remember you saying how much you dug the changeling during that during that episode. Nice. Which T starts out with Well, you forgot the and then Yeah. But I, I love how the first two, literally the first two notes of the song are on the drums. I mean, it's almost like Bayless ta- ta- t- told us about Dublut and Cat being the uh, yeah, drum right. intro. You know, they didn't name the song after the sound of the drum intro, but yeah, it's there. I love it. I love it. Second would be uh, off the second Puddle of Mud album, Life on Display, which was not a very good album, but there's a song on there, an album track called Spin You Around, which is one of my kind of favorite songs of that early to mid 2000s era. And last would be. Easy Money by King Crimson. And I really like the live version of that on one of the many live albums that they put out. So T, that is what is in my head and that is what is in your head and that is what is in our heads. And I'll tell you what's going to be in my head for a while are some of these songs of saturation. Well, you know what's not in our heads? What's that? Brains. <laughs> yeah. I kid, I kid. I kid, I kid. Exactly. Well, we want to thank Eddie King Roser for joining us and uh, giving us all that great perspective. And we want to thank you, T, for just being you. Me? What, you. me? You. Me? You. Well, well, thanks, buddy. Listen, I do the best I can. I want to thank everybody for joining us for episode 48. Leave us comments and feedback and such and make a request. You know, we've done some request episodes. We love getting requests from our listeners. Until the next time, please take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you for episode 49 of Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.